fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And this was a perfect existence. Adam and Eve lived in a perfect existence here on the earth. It was literally the kingdom of God on the earth. God made everything about the creation, everything about this world pertaining to him, pertaining to his will, pertaining to his desire for his people. God doesn't have two different wills. He doesn't will one thing for his people now and something else for his people of the old covenant. And remember that the, the, the curse or the result, the consequences that God told Adam and Eve would take place would be that they would die. Thou shalt not eat thereof, thou shalt surely not eat of this fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For in the day that thou eatest therein, thou shalt surely die. Now when he's talking about dying or talking about death, he can't be talking about physical death. Because Adam and Eve lived 930 years past the point where they sinned against God. So he's talking about spiritual death. The curse of the law, the curse of God's broken law, God's broken command was spiritual death. And you remember there were some things that happened uh, as a result of that spiritual death coming upon man. The light in him went out. He, uh, his eyes were opened, not to spiritual things, but to natural things. And they saw that they were naked and they were ashamed. And so they hid from God. The consequence of, of spiritual death in the beginning was they hid from God's face. The Bible tells us that God would come down in the cool of the day and walk and talk with Adam and Eve and speak to them and fellowship with them. So spiritual death was the result, the ultimate result of, God, of Adam's disobedience in the Garden of Eden. Now the Bible says that when Paul wrote to the Romans, he wrote to them and said that death reigned from Adam to Moses. But then he went further and said, but sin is not imputed where there is no law. So spiritual death was the source of every other curse, every other evil, every operation of Satan that took place in the earth between Adam and Moses. Now when Moses comes on the scene, as we mentioned already, he led the children of Israel out of bondage of Egypt. But then on their way to the promised land, they stopped at Mount Sinai. And upon Mount Sinai, God gave Moses the Ten Commandments and he instituted the law, what we call the law of Moses. Moses was the law giver according to Jewish tra tradition. Now, why was the, the law of Moses such a key factor? Well, as I said, the Bible identifies that sin is not imputed where there is no law. So sin was not held against anybody until Moses came and brought the law with him to the people. We read in these first 14 verses of Deuteronomy 28, all the blessings that would come upon them, the children of Israel, by keeping the law of Moses. 
But beginning in verse 15, the curses are pronounced to the children of Israel. Warning was given them so that they would obey the word, obey the law. But it starts in verse 15 and identifies what the curse of the law is, the curse of Adam's sin and the curse of breaking of God's, uh, what we call the law of Moses. But it shall come to pass, if thou wilt not hearken unto the voice of the Lord thy God, to observe to do all of his commandments and his statutes, which I command thee this day, that all these curses shall come upon thee and overtake thee. Cursed shalt thou be in the city, and cursed shalt thou be in the field. Cursed shall thou be thy basket in thy store. Cursed shall be the fruit of thy body and the fruit of thy land, the increase of thy kind and the flocks of thy sheep. Cursed shall be, shalt thou be when thou comest in, and cursed shalt thou be when thou goest out. The Lord shall send upon thee cursing, vexation, and rebuke, and all that thou settest thine hand unto for to do, until thou be destroyed, and until thou perish quickly, because of the wickedness of thy doings, whereby thou hast forsaken me. The Lord shall make the pestilence cleave unto thee, until he has consumed thee from off the land, whither thou goest to possess it. The Lord shall smite thee with a consumption, and with a fever, and with an inflammation, and with an extreme burning, and with the sword and blasting, and with mildew, and they shall pursue thee until thou perish. And thy heaven that is over thy head shall be brass, and the earth that is under thee shall be iron. The Lord shall make the rain of thy land powder and dust. From heaven shall it come down upon thee until thou be destroyed. The Lord shall cause thee to be smitten before thine enemies, and thou shalt go out one way against them and flee seven ways before them, and they shall be removed unto all the kingdoms of the earth. And the carcass shall be meat, thy carcass shall be meat unto all the fowls of the air and unto the beasts of the earth, and no man shall fray them away. The Lord will smite thee with the botch of Egypt and with emeralds and with the scab and with the itch whereof, whereof thou cannot be healed. The Lord shall smite thee with madness and blindness and astonishment of heart, and thou shalt grope at noonday as a blind gropeth in darkness, and thou shalt not prosper in thy ways, and thou shalt be only oppressed and spoiled evermore. And no man shall save thee. Spiritual death, as we mentioned, is the source, is the origin, the origin of all these bless, of all these curses that were pronounced upon the children of Israel if they failed to keep the law of Moses. You can see that it includes sickness and disease. Sickness and disease is a curse of the law. It includes poverty and lack. Because poverty and lack are, uh, are in the curse of the law, part of the curse of the law as well. So we see that sickness and disease and poverty and lack are all consequences or the result of spiritual death. Now there are some other scriptures in here I want to skip down to, particularly those that pertain to, to sickness and disease. Verse 35, it says, The Lord shall smite thee in the knees and in the legs with a sore box that cannot be healed from the sole of thy foot unto the top of thy head. Go down further. Verse 45, it says, Moreover, all these curses shall come upon thee and shall pursue thee and overtake thee till thou be destroyed. Going further down. 
It says in verse 58, it says, If thou wilt not observe to do all the words of this law that are written in this book, that thou mayest fear this glorious and fearful name, the Lord thy God, then the Lord will make thy plagues wonderful, and the plagues of thy seed, even great plagues, and of the long continuance, and sore sicknesses and long continuance. Moreover, he will bring upon thee all the diseases of Egypt, which thou wast afraid of, and they shall cleave unto thee. Verse 61, also, every sickness and every plague which is not written in this book of the law, them will the Lord bring upon thee until thou be destroyed. So he says that every sickness is a part of the curse of the law, not just the ones that are enumerated or identified earlier in the chapter. Verse 61 says all sickness is a part of the curse of the law. Every sickness, known or unknown, to them at that point in time and to us in our point in time. Sickness and disease is a part of the curse of the law. Now turn with me to Galatians chapter 3. Galatians chapter 3, verse 13, it says, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law. Being made a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone that hangeth on a tree. That the blessing of Abraham might come on the Gentiles through Jesus Christ. That we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. Now folks, here's my point. If sickness and disease are a part of the curse of the law, and we uh, see without a shadow of a doubt that it is. But if sickness and disease is a part of the curse of the law, then the only remedy for sickness and disease is a substitute is for somebody to take our place and pay our, the price of the sins and transgressions that, we, that are of us. More specifically, since sickness and disease is a part of the curse of the law, then the only way we can escape this, the curse of sickness and disease is by the answer for spiritual death which was the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus. If spiritual death results in sickness and disease, and we, saw, we see clearly that it does, then the only remedy for sickness and disease to be removed from our bodies is the same remedy for the removal of sin from our lives. In other words, the redemptive work of Jesus on the cross is the only answer, the only cure, the only possibility that we have of being removed from this curse, which is identified as the curse of the law. One of the hardest things, it seems to me, for people to accept, and I, I, I can relate, I understand it myself, but the answer, the same answer for sickness and disease is the answer for sin. Turn with me to Luke chapter 5. Luke chapter 5 tells us the story of Jesus bringing healing to the people. Verse 17, it says, And it came to pass on a certain day as he was teaching, there were Pharisees and doctors of the law sitting by which were come out of every town of Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem. <clears throat> and the power of the Lord was present to heal them. And folks, notice that phrase, and the power of the Lord was present to heal them. 
What's Jesus teaching? He's got to be talking about and teaching about healing. Because if the power of the Lord was present to heal, and the Bible says faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word, then he has to be talking healing. Wouldn't make sense for him to be speaking on water baptism and in the Bible to tell us that the, present, the power of the Lord was present to heal them. That which brings the power of the Lord to bear is that which is being spoken of, the word of God that is being spoken of. So when it says the power of the Lord was present to heal, Jesus is teaching something that includes the healing power of God. Healing scriptures bring the power of God to bear. Verse 18, And behold, men brought in a bed a man which was taken with a palsy, and they sought means to bring him in and to lay him before him. And when they could not find what way they might bring him in because of the multitude, they went upon the housetop and let him down through the tiling with his couch in the midst of Jesus. And when he saw their faith, he said unto them, Man, thy sins are forgiven thee. Jesus saw their faith, and this is not faith that was predicated or resulting in the teaching that he was doing there in this house. And uh, if you look carefully in the other places that it tells us about this instance, this is Jesus' house. <coughs> this was the house that he moved to from Nazareth at the beginning of his earthly ministry to Capernaum. So these men come to the house where Jesus is teaching. They're carrying this guy on the cot that has the, the palsy. The room is already full. They can't find a way to get in. But their desire and their determination for their friend, the crippled guy, to be healed by the words, uh, words or works of Jesus are great enough for them to tear the roof off the house to let him down before Jesus. And Jesus sees their faith. Whose faith does he see? Well, we see that the four men have faith to bring him. But the guy on the, the, guy on the cot... The man with the palsy must have faith too to, to trust them to let him down in the middle of the house. So Jesus sees their faith. He knows what they've come for. They've come for healing for their friend. But what does Jesus say? He says, man, thy sins be forgiven thee. He knows this is going to stir up strife with the Pharisees there were some times where Jesus said things to people to tick them off when I realized that many years ago that brought me great comfort because I've got a lot of experience with saying things that tick people off but the scribes and the Pharisees began to reason saying who is this which speaketh blasphemies who can forgive sins but God alone? 
But when Jesus perceived their thoughts, he answering said unto them, What reason ye in your hearts? Whether it is easier to say, Thy sins be forgiven thee, or to say, Rise up and walk. Now, folks, consider that question. Which is harder to say? There is no fear whatsoever attached to telling somebody that their sins are forgiven. Because we have been well-schooled and well-taught that the blood of Jesus, the crucifixion of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus, was to free man from the burden of sin. And we can identify from the scripture very easily that Jesus was the Lamb of God slain from the foundations of the world. He was slain, slain, he shed blood for every person on the face of the earth. So some of the worst men in the history of the world had just as much a right to salvation as we have. Now we think about that. We think about some of these tyrants in history and the cruelty that they operated in and the number of people that they killed and murdered and so forth. We look at that and from a feeling standpoint, we might not like the fact that the blood of Jesus was shed just as much for them as it was for us. But the reality is, if any of those men at any point in their lives, irrespective of the murders and evil that they wrought during their lifetimes, if at any moment they turned to God for salvation, the blood of Jesus would have covered them. So we see greater risk associated with healing than we do salvation. If somebody came to the altar this morning to give their life to Jesus and they were so distraught by the realization of the sin that they've committed and the sins that are due them, we would stay with them as long as we had to to convince them that the blood of Jesus that cleanses us from sin is greater than whatever they did, greater than whatever sin they committed. But Jesus doesn't approach things this way. And Jesus, operating in his earthly ministry to reveal to us the Father. Remember, Jesus said he didn't come to the earth to do his own will, but the will of the Father. He said, I only do the things which I see my Father do. I only speak the things that he heard or witnessed that the Father spoke. So Jesus takes a, an equal attitude between forgiveness of sin and the healing for the physical body. So he asks the question, which is harder to say? Which is harder to say? We have greater faith in the blood of Jesus for salvation, the forgiveness of sins, than we have in it for the healing of the physical body. We think sometimes along the lines of what would we do if we commanded somebody to be healed and they weren't healed. 
somehow or another, we have ingrained in our thinking, and it's easy to understand how it comes from hundreds of years of wrong teaching that has affected our way of thinking and affected how we consider God's word to work. Somehow or another, we seem to think that there's responsibility upon us when we declare the healing power of God or when we speak to someone to be healed. But Jesus said that forgiveness of sins and the healing of the physical body are on equal ground. Which is harder to say? Somebody's sins are forgiven them? Or to rise, take up their bed and walk? Jesus goes on to say in verse 24, but that you may know that the Son of Man has power upon earth to forgive sins. But that you may know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins. Now remember just a few verses before, the scribes are, are reasoning with themselves, among themselves. And they've concluded that Jesus is speaking blasphemous words when he said, man, thy sins are forgiven you. They've heard, just like the, the four guys bringing their friend on the cot, the scribes have heard of Jesus' healing ministry there in Capernaum, and that's where Jesus did some of his greatest works. It's certainly where he did some of his earliest works and healing miracles. So they're aware that he has healing power or authority over sickness and disease. They have the right to come to the same conclusion on that subject as we see in Matthew chapter 8 when the centurion does remember the centurion says to Jesus my servant lies at home sick of the palsy Jesus said I'll come heal him the centurion says you don't have to come to my house Lord I'm a man under authority and I understand that you have authority over sickness and disease so all you have to do is speak the word and my servant will be healed Jesus marveled at that because it was what he considered to be great faith These fellows, these scribes, have the same opportunity to exhibit great faith as the centurion did. But they let themselves get sidetracked, at least in this instance, by saying, only God can forgive sin. Then Jesus said, but that you may know that the Son of Man has power on the earth to forgive sin. He's going to prove to them that he has the power to forgive sin. In other words, he's proving to them by their own estimation, their own reasoning. He is providing evidence, proof that he is the son of God on the earth. So Jesus says, he poses a question to him, which is easier to say. Be healed, or your sins are forgiven. But that you may know that the Son of Man has the power on the earth to forgive sin. He said to the sick of the palsy, 
I say unto thee, Arise and take up thy couch and go into thine house. And immediately he arose up before them and took up on that whereon he lay and departed to his own house, glorifying God. And they were all amazed and glorified God and were filled with fear, saying, We have seen strange things today. They didn't even fix Jesus' roof. There are so many different stories and different lessons from the healing experiences and the healing ministry of Jesus here on the earth. But I don't think there's one that's a greater lesson than this. And if we can ever get a hold of it, if we can ever put aside and put away all the wrong thinking that we have and the wrong conceptions we have about what Jesus' ministry on the earth was really all about, then we would be in a much better position to do the works of Jesus as he said that we should and even greater works because he went to his father. Jesus says that they're on equal basis. Forgiveness of sins and healing for the physical body are on equal basis. Now why is that? Because the same price had to be paid for both. And that price is the one Jesus came to the earth to pay. It will be included in the, the shedding of his blood. The shedding of blood for sins gives us great confidence that salvation is for everybody and the blood of Jesus is great enough to overcome any wrongdoing, any evil, any, any evil work, any sin, any and every sin of mankind. But he knows that the same blood will have to be shed to provide for man's healing just as it was provided for man's sins. Now let's make sure we're not taking something out of context here. Turn with me to Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5 verse 12. It says, wherefore, as by one man sin entered the world, and death by sin. And so death passed upon all men, for all have sinned. Now notice what he's speaking of. This death he's talking about is not physical death. It's spiritual death. The source and origin of sickness and disease. The source and origin of poverty and lack. So here Paul is saying by the Holy Ghost, revealing to us by the Holy Ghost, how sin entered the world, or how death entered the world, how spiritual death that reigned from Adam to Moses, as we referred to earlier, how it came into being. It came into being through the vehicle of sin, the disobedience of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, changed the course of the world and change what the history of mankind would be. Now the context that Paul writes these things in Romans chapter 5 is in the context of a substitute, a sacrifice that was made in our behalf. Notice verse 9. It says much more than, well, verse 8. But God commended his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than being now justified by his blood, 
we shall be saved from wrath through him. For if, this word if is the word since. For since when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Much more being reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. Let's read that again. Let's pay, pay close attention to verse 10. For since when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. This word reconciled means mutual exchange. It's telling us that the death of Jesus was the process of exchange between God and mankind. Jesus, who knew no sin, who was not guilty of sin in any way whatsoever after living 33 and a half years on this earth, his righteousness, his right standing with God was traded to us, exchanged to and for us, for our sinful natures, the spiritual death that ruled and controlled us. So when Jesus died on the cross, it wasn't just a physical death. Jesus became sin on the cross. We see in some of the Old Testament atonement types and illustrations that Jesus was identified as the brass serpent on the pole. Numbers 21 tells us about how the fiery serpents, which were always in the land, the wilderness that they went through, but they never had any problem with them as long as they were walking in fellowship with God. But in Numbers chapter 21, it tells us how that the people murmured against Moses. And as they murmured against Moses and spoke against God's plan, the fiery serpents, the, the, the protection, God's protection over them was lifted. And many of them died from these poisonous snake bites. Moses goes to God after the people repent. And God tells him to make a brass serpent and put it on a pole. Now in most of our thinking, we would understand if he made a brass lamb and put it on a pole. We could understand that because Jesus was the lamb of God. But we know that the serpent is a, is a type and a symbol for Satan and his work, evil works. And we don't like to think of Jesus taking upon himself the nature of Satan which was death, spiritual death. We feel more comfortable by putting something else to represent Jesus than a serpent on the pole. But Jesus identifies with the serpent on the pole in John chapter 3. I think it's verse 14. He says, Moses lifted up the serpent of brass in the wilderness. So must the Son of Man be lifted up from the earth. So God's plan from the beginning was to have an exchange between himself and mankind. Jesus, who came to the earth as the perfect representation and perfect example of God the Father, lived a life without sin, but knowing full well that he was going to have to bear your sins in mind. He understood, he knew 
in my opinion, this is what caused him to sweat great drops of blood in the Garden of Gethsemane before he was betrayed. Or not before he was betrayed, but before he was taken prisoner by the Sanhedrin. I don't think Jesus is just withdrawing from the physical pain of the crucifixion. I wouldn't blame him if he did. But he had more to him than that. Well, what's he sweating great drops of blood for? What's he praying in agony for in the Garden of Gethsemane then? He knows he's going to have to be separated from his father. And that fellowship that he had with his father, he knew how long it would last. He knew it was a three-day stretch, three-day period. But his relationship with his father and the fellowship that he had with him was so important to him, was so crucial. He didn't want to give up those three days. I don't believe that he's just drawing away from the, the wrath and the punishment that he's going to endure because he knows what God's plan is. He knows from the beginning before it ever took place. He knew that after three days he'd raise, be raised again from the dead. But it was what that would happen in those three days that he recoiled from. So when we were sinners, ungodly, evil of nature, Jesus died for us, not because we wanted him to. We didn't even know we needed a Savior. But he knew that he would have to be separated from his father. And that brought such agony that the angels themselves had to come and strengthen him. So before we deserved it, as if we ever did, when we were enemies of God, the work of Jesus reconciled us to God by the death of his son. Much more being reconciled. Here's this word exchange again. Being mutually changed, we shall be saved by his life. So what does it tell us? Here Paul is identifying this substitutionary work of Jesus. And only the substitutionary work of Jesus. That could make us whole. Not only redeemed from sin, spiritual death became a non-issue because we received his righteousness, the righteousness of Jesus himself, which freed us from poverty and sickness and disease. We read just a moment ago in Galatians chapter 3, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law. He has redeemed us by the curse of the law. Being made a curse for us. Here's Paul talking about substitution again. Jesus took upon us, upon him, our sins and our sicknesses and our poverty. And through his work on the cross, brought us to a place 
in the family of God where we could be heirs of the blessing of Abraham. And not only that, but receive the promise of the Spirit through faith so that we can have the same kind of fellowship with God that Jesus had when he was here on the earth. Folks, the point of it is this very simply. Christ redeeming us from the curse of the law by necessity must take place and can only take place through the work of Jesus on the cross. Now let me change gears here for just a, a, a few moments. I want to read to you from some things in F.F. Bosworth's Christ the Healer. It's one of the greatest collections of truth on the subject of healing that I've ever come across. I believe that exists on the earth. In one of the chapters, earlier chapters of the book, he makes some straightforward arguments about healing being a part of the redemptive work of Jesus. I'm going to read a little bit from his book. He says this. He says on pages 6 and 7 of the Schofield Bible, Mr. Schofield in his footnote on the redemptive names, says that the name Jehovah is distinctly the redemptive name of deity. And it means the self-existent one who reveals himself. Now, the Dr. Schofield that he's talking about was a, a fundamentalist. He was a part of the Southern Baptist Convention during his life. And he did not preach healing belonging to the people of, uh, people of, of God, the ch uh, church, the modern-day church of his day. He believed and was very vocal to preach that Jesus healed the sick when he's here on the earth to prove that he was the Son of God, but that healing was not included in the redemptive plan of God along with other things other ways that God revealed himself. But he was an honest man. A lot of the people you get nowadays that reject the healing power of God as being part of the redemptive work of Jesus on the cross. A lot of the people are ignoring dishonestly things that the Bible clear, clearly identifies but Dr. Schofield didn't do that. He had other reasons that he believed why healing had been done away with, so to speak. But he didn't stop that from sharing the truth that he had and the truth that he knew with whoever was listening. So this Dr. Schofield said in the footnote on the redemptive names of, of God that the name Jehovah is distinctly the redemption name of deity. And here's what the name Jehovah means. It means the self-existent one who reveals himself. 
Folks, God's not trying to stay hidden. His word reveals very clearly who he is and what he does. He goes on to say these seven redemptive names point to a continuous and increasing self-revelation. He then says in his redemptive relation to man, Jehovah has seven compound names which reveal him as meeting every need of man from his lost state to the end. These are the following seven redemptive names. Jehovah Shammah is translated the Lord is there or present, revealing to us the redemptive privilege of enjoying his presence. Now this is this name was given to God by himself during Ezekiel's vision of the new Jerusalem. He gives great detail about how the new Jerusalem was to be laid out for the Jews. We know that it includes more than just the Jews. But Ezekiel didn't seem to be too aware of that during his prophecies and revelation. And the name of the city that we know of as the New Jerusalem that the Bible refers to later throughout as the New Jerusalem Ezekiel identifies that the name of that city is that the Lord is present. Signifying the fellowship, the continual fellowship that we'll have with him when that new Jerusalem is accomplished. The next redemptive name is the Lord our peace. It's Jehovah Shalom. This name came about in Judges chapter 6, verse 24, when God is talking to Gideon and getting him ready to deliver the children of Israel from their enemies. The next redemptive name, the third redemptive name, is Jehovah Ra, or Rea, maybe, is how it says, is pronounced. And it's translated, The Lord is my shepherd. Now we all know this 23rd Psalm. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. It's a psalm of David, but by the Holy Ghost, it is revealed to him God's fellowship with mankind, his goodness and his mercy. And it's one of the most beautiful portions of Scripture that identifies that God cares about us in every way possible. The next is Jehovah Jireh, which means the Lord will provide an offering. This takes place when God sends Abraham to Mount Moriah to offer Isaac as a sacrifice. You remember the story how that they traveled three days from where they are camped or live to this mountain this very specific place. It's the same place that we know of as the Temple Mount today. And they come to the foot of the mountain and Abraham tells his servants to wait there. Then he says something 
that has more meaning to him and us than to the people that heard it. He said that we will return. So he takes the, all the things that they'll need to build an altar on the top of the mountain. And they take everything except a, a, a sacrifice to offer. And Isaac questions his father about this. And Abraham responds, the Lord will provide an offering. You remember after he lays Isaac on the altar, here he is, probably 115 years old. A man that Isaac could very easily overcome physically if he wanted to. And the fact that he didn't tells me that Isaac was believing God just like Abraham was. And Abraham comes to the point where he lifts up the, the knife in his hand to take Isaac's life. And the angel stops him and identifies that the expression of his faith was such that it was equal to or just as if he had gone through with the sacrifice. And then they look over and caught in a bush was a little lamb that they offered as a sacrifice instead. So here's the Lord, our provider. The next is Jehovah Nisi, which means the Lord is our banner or victor, victor or captain. Now this was in Exodus chapter 17, I believe it is where the children of Israel are waging war against one of their enemies. And Moses is directed by God to stand on a mountain and overlook the battle. And it comes to pass that Moses realizes that when he holds his hands up, the battle goes in Israel's manner or in their favor. But when he lets his arms down, the enemy starts winning the, the battle. So Moses sat on a rock, and Joshua is on one side, and somebody else is on the other side, and they hold his hands up. And Israel wins a great victory that day. And as a result, Moses sings a psalm of deliverance and victory identifying God as our victory. We certainly know and, and understand that our victory comes through the, the work of Jesus, which that was a type of. The next is Jehovah Sidkenu, which means the Lord our righteousness. Jeremiah chapter 23 identifies the righteousness of God that is made available to us through the mutual exchange or substitutionary work that Jesus performs on, uh, for the church. Now the seventh redemptive name is Jehovah Rapha. And it means I am the Lord that healeth thee. 
I want to take you back to Exodus chapter 15. The children of Israel have been brought out of Egypt. The Egyptian armies have been destroyed in the Red Sea. They travel in their journeys toward the promised land. And they come to a place called Mara, which had water, but it was bitter. It was something they couldn't stomach. And so Moses cries out to God for, on the behalf of the people. Beginning in verse 25, it says, And he cried unto the Lord, talking about Moses. And the Lord showed him a tree, which when he had cast into the waters, the waters were made sweet. And there he made for them a statute and an ordinance. And there he proved them. And said, If thou wilt diligently hearken to the voice of the Lord thy God, and will do that which is right in his sight, and will give ear to his commandments, and keep all of his statutes, I will put none of the diseases upon thee which have come upon the Egyptians, for I am the Lord that healeth thee. Now, I want you to notice that there's something different about this name. One of the seven redemptive names. But this one is not just identifying a work that God has done. This is one that becomes as part of their, the law of Moses and a part of their tradition. This is right on the heels of the first Passover, the institution of the Passover. where they took a lamb and put them, uh, wiped the blood on the doorpost and the lintels to protect them from the angel of death. Now the Bible says that God led them forth with silver and gold and there was not one feeble among them. Not one feeble among them. Well, with the size group that they were, how could they possibly not have somebody that was weak and sickly among them? Apparently, as, it, as the Bible tells us happened in other places and at other, uh, at other times, the eating of the Passover provided healing for the physical body for the Israelites. So here where God says, I am the Lord that healeth thee, the tense of the verb that's used is present perfect, which means it can be translated, I am the Lord that will heal thee, but it can also be translated as I am the Lord that has healed thee. Well, that would fit with how Israel could come forth out of Egypt after 430 years of slavery and there not be one feeble, weak or sickly person among them. But notice again in verse 25. There he made for them a statute and an ordinance. A statute is a commandment. An ordinance is something that they can always expect to be there. It's the only one of the redemptive names of God that's associated with a statute and an ordinance. There are places in Numbers chapter 13, uh, uh, chapter 14, I should say, where God said, as truly as I live, 
as truly as I live, invokes the life of God and the outstanding characteristics of the life of God that we're familiar with is that they are eternal and unchanging. And he says in two places in that same chapter, as truly as I live, saith the Lord, the eternal and unchanging law of God declares that the earth shall be filled with the glory of God. And then a little bit later in the chapter, he says, as truly as I live, the eternal and unchanging promise of God is that as they have spoken in my ears, so shall I do unto them. Here you get something similar to that. It's not exactly the same thing, but it's very similar because it's a statute and an ordinance. It doesn't just mean that there's a promise of healing, but that by keeping the Passover, or in our case, keeping the Lord's Supper, we can invoke that which is eternal concerning God, which is the healing power and the healing nature of God. Now, folks, let me ask you a couple of questions, and I'll close with this. We know that the Lord is our shepherd. Could God stop being our shepherd? If he wanted to. If he wanted any of these redemptive names to change. Could he stop on any of them? Could he stop being our righteousness? No, it's something that's been established forever and ever. Could he stop being our peace? It's who he is. Paul wrote to Timothy, 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 13. And Paul said this to Timothy. He said, even if we believe not, God is faithful. He cannot deny himself. If God stopped being any of these redemptive names, he would be denying himself. Because these are not just things that he does. This is who he is. As Dr. Schofield said again, the name Jehovah means the self-existent one who reveals himself. So he can't stop being any of these redemptive names because these redemptive names are simply identifying who he is. So it would be impossible for him to ever not be the Lord that healeth thee. We have a good God as our Father. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the cross of Jesus. We thank you that the shedding of his blood has redeemed us from the curse of the law. We thank you, Father, that you have revealed yourself unto us. You have revealed yourself as our peace you have revealed yourself as our righteousness you have revealed yourself as our shepherd and our provider and our victory 
And Father, we thank you that you have revealed yourself forever and always as our healer. Father, we pronounce healing upon every person in our church. We pronounce you as our healer for things big and things small. Just as we declare that the blood of Jesus has made us righteous, we declare that the blood of Jesus has healed our bodies. Jesus didn't seem to think there was any difference between the two. So, Father, it must be just a matter of us placing our faith on that which belongs to us. So, by faith, we say not only are we made righteous, we declare that we are healed by the stripes of Jesus. We worship you, Father. We magnify your holy name. Blessed be the name of Jesus. Blessed be your name, Lord. Father, the scripture says of Abraham, that he was strong in faith, giving glory to God, and that he was fully persuaded that what you had promised you were able also to perform. We give you glory, Lord, for that which we cannot yet see. We glorify you that we are healed according to your word no matter what it looks like, no matter how we feel. And Lord, we declare that there's nothing too hard for you, but that you are truly able to carry out your promise. And the statute and the ordinance whereby we live. We declare these things from our heart, Lord. And we offer you the sacrifice of praise for that which we don't yet see. We worship you, Lord. Blessed be the name of Jesus. Blessed be the name of Jesus. We're not under the curse. For Jesus has set us free. For sickness we've health and for poverty, wealth, because Christ has ransomed us in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Hallelujah. We're redeemed and healed by the precious blood of Jesus. Amen. Well, turn around and shake hands with somebody and tell them I'm glad I came today. And you're dismissed.